All right, you guys, let's get this started then, right? Because really, what could go wrong once you press record, right? Exactly, what could go wrong? <laughs> it's all going to be very perfect. So welcome to the Crazy People Podcast. Over there in, in seat number one, uh, from hip-hops to psyops, he is the king of curious questions, Maurice Hoffman. Wow. In seat number, in seat number That's three. That's intro. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Russ Brummel here, uh, and in the hot seat in between us is is Jeff Bajoric. So welcome, Jeff. Dude, I'm happy to be in this hot seat. Crazy people are my kind of people, so let's get it on. <laughs> we'll just apologize in advance for for everything. That's nope. okay. I will accept no such apology. <laughs> well, by by way of introduction, um, I was as I was uh, telling Maurice before we started recording, um, I, I met you. Uh, through LinkedIn and mm -hmm. uh, through some work that you were doing there with with some other sales focused people and uh, some fundraising you were doing all kind of stuff, mm -hmm. um, but we don't have a whole lot of the backstory. Maybe you can give us the the backstory. Where where how does Jeff Bajork end up here today? It was a cold day in September 1979. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it's it's funny I. I'll fast forward through the first 25 years of my life. The um, I found myself looking for a job, um, but I gave myself, I gave my former employer two and a half months notice. So just through some weird circumstances, I knew I was leaving the hospital that I was working at, but I didn't know where I was going to land. It was too early. I mean, I, there were jobs posted. I knew, I mean, the, the market was for what I was doing at the time um, was open. So, and I was good. So I knew I'd find someplace, but it was too early to start looking. And so when my resignation was announced, there was a woman sat next to me and she said, Jeff, where, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, Rose, I'll, I'll figure it out. We got some time. She said, why don't you get into selling? I said, are you, are you still talking to me? I, did we just switch conversations here? And uh, she said, no, I, I think you'd be really good at this. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. But I was 24 years old. I had no reason not to take an interview that she set up for me. And so I kind of pursued it. And over the course of a summer, I remember um, kind of being courted by this firm of products. I was, my degrees in sports medicine. And so there was, um, it was an orthopedic sales job. So I spoke the language, the, the, the people, the, the physicians that I was working for at the time um, at that hospital would have been my customers. And the person who offered me the job, he said, look, I know you can do this. I know you don't know anything about business. I know all this other stuff, but you're a good person. You're a hard worker. You speak the language and everybody that works with you told me to hire you. So like, you want to give this a <laughs> shot or what? And I had no reason to say no. It just felt like an interesting kind of um, progression. And I tell you that story so I can tell you the rest of the story. I was, I was with that firm for about three years. I left that firm because um, I, was, I wasn't having a lot of success. But I also felt at the same time, like I was stifling a lot of my intuition, right? There were mm -hmm. a lot of times where I tell myself, I feel like I should do it this way, you know, let's say. And then the resistance, uh, Stephen Pressfield, I was just listened to a podcast with Stephen Pressfield before I got on here today. And, and the, the resistance, what he calls that voice in your head that says, no, 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 you, 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 you can't do it that way. <laughs> and I fought that. And then um, finally, 
I realized that I needed to make a change because I thought I could be really good at it, but just didn't feel like it was the right situation. So I went to another company. It was a better situation. It was the best job I ever had. And one of the things that I did right away was I committed. And I said, if you can't do it this way, Jeff, don't do it. Maybe this just isn't for you. And my career took off. All of a sudden, I was having success. All of a sudden, that feeling of confusion and stifling this intuition and everything went away. Um, when I started to feel that way again, when it became clear to me that this just wasn't the right position for me to be in, um, I started to look at other opportunities. Um, I knew that I was doing things differently. I knew that I was doing things in a way that I thought I could help other people kind of learn from. And I decided to open a coaching, a sales coaching training and consulting company. And as serendipity would happen uh, or, or would have it rather, the, um, I had a small opportunity with the blessing of my company that I was going to work on the side. And then I was going to just build this business and eventually leave that firm. A small opportunity turned into a big opportunity. And it was a Sunday afternoon in June. I looked at my wife and I said, I guess we own a business now. Let's try to figure out how to run it. <laughs> and that was seven and a half years ago. So um, that's the, the quick version of, of how I got here. And now what I'm learning running a, a sales training business is that it really doesn't have much to do with how well you could sell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there's a whole lot more that goes into running a business, um, especially a sales training business, than training salespeople and, and knowing how to sell. And uh, that's been the journey I've been on. And, and I learned something new every day. You know, it, it seems to me like your sort of sales coaching mentality is, is, is more than just go with your gut. Right. Um, but, but you were, you were a sales coach before sales coaches were cool. It seems in 2022, every salesperson in the world wants to become a sales coach. Right. But, but you were doing oh, it before yeah. it was cool. Uh, you were posting a lot of stuff uh, on LinkedIn before it was cool. Um is that, is that all just go with your gut or is there a, some method behind that madness? That's a great question. I think what I've learned and what I've learned to communicate is that you need to trust your gut more often than you do, mm -hmm. but there certainly is more to it than that. You need to trust your gut within the confines of what needs to happen. Now, I, I think about the sales process as being different from a sales methodology, being different from a sales playbook. And those are three words that get used interchangeably and they're, mm -hmm, they're sure. not the same things. The process is what needs to happen. The methods are your ways of making those things happen. And the playbook is really the options that you set up for yourself to implement the methods to then accomplish what happens in the process. So when it comes to methods, your gut is going to lead you right more often than you realize. Mm -hmm. But the process is pretty rigid. There are things that have to happen. And occasionally you can skip those things. But every time you lose a deal, you can trace it back to something you missed whether you skipped it or missed it by accident. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel like the gut kind of works into, you know, that, that framework, if you will, that hierarchy, if you will, is, hey, trust your gut all you want, just so long as you're still trying to accomplish a reasonable end. The means by which you go about accomplishing that, hey, man, knock yourself out. Do, do something cool. Do Go wild. Be crazy, right? Like, mm -hmm. have fun. Be yourself. Put your own spin on things. As long as you're headed toward something that the goal that you know you need to to reach is that the model that you use to build the the thing that you've built over the last seven and a half years 
It's what I'm becoming. It's what I'm trusting myself to do more of. Okay. And what's really interesting is these last couple of months. And, you know, when we met, it was kind of, um, I was kind of in the middle of this, I'm calling it an identity crisis, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I have mentors, I have friends, I have colleagues who do this at a very, very high level. You have read their books. You have paid to see them mm-hmm. speak. These are people who will take my calls. These are people who occasionally call me sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, all right. I'm good at this. I have the respect of my peers. And when I asked them how they built their business, I took their advice. And what took me probably six and a half years to learn was that the way they did it, not allowed to be the way that I can do it. (laughs) So following someone else's playbook, following someone else's blueprint. and, And look, I've had like lots of clients who will finish an engagement with me and say, Jeff, you changed our business. Like this is like, we're in an amazing spot. We were about to make a bad decision that could have sent us in the wrong direction, but your guidance, your wisdom, your expertise helped us right the ship, helped us do great work. I know I'm good at what I do, mm-hmm. but when I, when it's like, okay, well, do I just need to write a book and then figure out how to make it a bestseller? How come the books that I've written haven't done as well as I'd like them to? Why don't more people call me without me calling them like what what am i doing if if everybody's telling me i'm so good at this why aren't more people like asking if i can be good for them right it's like that, that line from moneyball where where you know the mm-hmm. scout says uh, you know or, uh, billy bean brad pitt says well if he's such a good hitter then why doesn't he hit good right like this just this <laughs> paradox and um what i've come to learn was that i needed to find my own path my own place i had to I had to carve out my own niche i had too many people tell me Jeff, we love what we what you do, but we don't know how to think of you. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't have a place on the shelf to put you. And um, that's when I realized that this was about a lot more than just showing up every day, posting on LinkedIn because the kids think it's cool, um, saying brash things that'll be provocative and get people's attention. Um, you know, there has to be more of a method behind it. And me trying to borrow someone else's playbook was going to get me mediocre results at best. And, um, you know, the, the irony or really just the reality of that also being my approach to help people break out of their own funk or their own mold or their own shell, um, like I've had to do every single time I've had a, a career change. Uh, I've had to make these little modifications and changes to bring myself, my full self to, to work. Um, you know, there's something poetic about it. Here's the, here's the funny thing. I've been doing marketing for a very long time, right? The, the people that were born way after I started marketing, they're all driving and drinking by now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so in recent months with a, with a job that I, that I started about a year ago, I have to start selling. And you, you mentioned something like you have to create your own playbook. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I definitely struggled with at the beginning. So how do you how do you go about developing this? Because I see that my colleagues are still struggling with what is their pitch, what is their approach versus what works for me cannot work for them, right? That's that's the only thing I figured out. This mm-hmm. is me, and you have to find your own way. But how do you guide people to developing their own playbook? It's such a great question. I've got this, it's a figure, it's a diagram. I call it the sales success cycle. And 
it's a virtuous cycle as opposed to a vicious cycle. A vicious cycle spins things, takes things out of control. A virtuous cycle takes things to where you ultimately want to go. And most sales reps, most salespeople, like who you're talking about with your colleagues, they get in this situation where they just can't find the right way to do it. They can't figure it out. And they doubt their own intuition. They doubt their own skill set. And because of that doubt and because of this consistent message that we should always be getting better and there's always a way to improve, you put those two elements together and it's like, well, let me go get better. Let me take a course. Let me read a book. Let me listen to a podcast. Let me watch some videos. And so they go and they find someone else's tried and true proven method. I'll put it into play. It worked for that guy. Should be able to work for me. And then it doesn't. Oh, okay. I tried it. I'm going to go find another one. It's a little different than this one I've already tried. So I'm fine. And I'm mediocre, meh kind of results. And you do that a couple of times and then you start to really doubt yourself. And it's like, well, wait, I'm a smart person. I, I can do, if I can't put these tried and true proven frameworks to, to into play, if I can't make them work for me, well, maybe I'm the common denominator here. You know, when you look around the room and you don't see that guy, you realize you're that guy, right? And so like you, you start to, you, you, you go from this place of doubt and then you experience failure or mediocrity at best. You do that a couple of times, then you start to experience shame and shame is no place to sell from, right? So this is this vicious cycle of doubt, failure, shame, doubt, failure, shame. At some point you have to flip that. And there's some catalyst for this. But you flip that and instead of doubt, failure, and shame, you go to integrity, belief, and performance. And integrity, belief, and performance is a virtuous cycle, like I mentioned before. And integrity is really your alignment between what you do, who you do it for, how you do it, and why. Those things, particularly the how you do it and why, those are the things that most people stifle. Those are the intuitions that when they finally start listening to them, they kick themselves and say, why didn't I listen to that voice in my head four years ago when I first had this idea? And the, the way you flip that is really just by taking a time out. What do I really feel like I need to do? What am I passionate about? Why am I in this position, working for this company? What made me believe that this was the right place for me? And when you can go through and when you have that alignment, when you have that integrity, that is that integrity is the foundation for belief. Now, when I know that I'm doing the right things for the right people, the right ways, for the right reasons, now I believe that I can succeed with it. And with that belief, that belief is what underscores and underpins the skill sets and, and the, um, the methods. And so you go from integrity to belief to performance. When you perform in a way that you feel good about, it underscores your integrity and that cycle kind of perpetuates itself. That shift from that vicious cycle to the virtuous cycle is the difference between a top performer and anybody else who's just mediocre. And I've, seen, I've said this for years, there's a 5% difference between mediocrity and superstardom. It's not in your skill set. Uh, most people know how to sell. Most people are pretty good at selling when you put them in position to do so, but they don't execute those skills because they don't fully believe the way they're supposed to execute them. And they're torn between, this doesn't feel right, but this is what everybody's doing. You get into the psychology of, you know, and then the sociology aspects of that, and you want to be a part of something, you don't want to be an outcast, but at some point, every top performer decides to be insubordinate. You decide to break out of that mold just a little bit, color outside the lines, and then they find out that it's really fun and it actually makes prettier pictures when you color that picture outside the lines in a way that only you can. 
so to, to get back to answering your question, that was a really long setup to answer your question, Mark, Maurice, but, you know, I would encourage them to get in touch with why do they work for this company? What makes them believe in the company they work for? What makes them believe in the solutions that they work, that they, that they sell? What makes them believe in themselves? Why is their customer better off from doing business with your company than any of their competitors, right? And you write those down and do that as a team exercise and, and think about it and talk about it and realize that on the team, everybody's got these same sentiments. And this isn't manufactured language coming from the marketing department. This is like, no, no, no. This is the reason I chose to work for this company. And when you start to answer those questions, you start to realize, hey, we're, we're onto something here. Well, maybe we should talk about this. Maybe these are the reasons that our customers are buying from us. And you know, the last question I tell people to ask themselves is why do your best customers buy from you? And it's a trick question because if you haven't asked, you don't know. So go to them and say, what is the real reason? Why, why did you do business with us the first time? Why do you continue to do business with us? And like that, that starts to flip the script and that starts to flip that cycle from one where you're really just unsure of everything. It's really hard to be effective in uncertainty, which is why the economy we're headed into is going to be so dangerous for so many people. When you're uncertain, you can't you can't perform when you become more certain. And when that certainty is rooted in all the reasons you believe you are where you're all, where you are, um, that's when thing, good things start to happen. So the, 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 the difference, the answer is not to look outward. The answer is to look in the mirror is to shut your phone off for an hour and journal on these four questions. And that's where I would, that's where I would tell them to start uh, Maurice. So much of our world today is about creating cookie cutters and doing what other people have done. And, and I think sometimes the real, the real differential is, and if, and if you look at the, you know, outsized performers in the world, um, you look at people who went their own way. I like that. They choose to be subordinate, yeah. be subordinate at some point. Yeah. Um, that's good stuff. I, I, had to, um, I, had, I, had a, I had a conversation with my manager and I was doing some things and I had my own kind of accounting system for my activities and stuff. He's like, what are you doing? And I said, mm, this is how I think I need to do this. And he's like, hold on here. We hired you to hit a number and this is the way, I mean, you know, and I said, yeah, I know you hired me. Now, trust me, give me a couple months. I'm not showing you results. I'll do it your way which really meant I'm going to quit and go figure something else to do. But that, that was between me and my brain, right? And um, I said, I'm going to do it this way. And look, I, I just, I'm asking you to have faith in me. I'm asking you to remember why you passed me through the interview process. And he said, okay. And then I just hit every month for like the next three years. And there weren't any complaints after that. Performance <laughs> cures a lot of, a lot of <laughs> doubts. Yeah. yeah, it sure yeah. does. What was really dangerous is when they put me on stage and asked me to help other people figure out how to do it too. Then they were a little, <laughs> then they were a little concerned, but, but it wasn't really that radical. It just made sense to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, you know, it's like judging yourself on how many calls you make. It doesn't matter how many calls I make. It matters how many meetings I book. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how many meetings I book as much as it matters how many sales I make. And I get there's, there's some backward math to that, but I know that if I am doing enough of the right things and I identified what those right things were for me, then um, the number was going to take care of itself. Revenue is a trailing indicator. And when you forget that re revenue is a trailing indicator by a couple of months, typically, yep. you start letting it dictate what you do today instead of remembering what you did a couple of months ago. 
And that's something that in a, what have you done for me lately, kind of hyper vigilant, hyper aware, hyper CRM, hyper everything, you know, as it relates to data and metrics, it's like, you know, you're forgetting about that metric of time. That is a real big indicator of what the numbers you're looking at now actually mean. You can't forget that. Yeah. And I think there's another element in there too. There's, there's, your energy and your passion and your drive. And if you're doing something that because somebody else told you to do it, it's something that you're not super confident in. It's draining on you. If you're doing something that you believe in, that's energizing, that's you've created or you've helped create, it's, you know, it's empowering and you want to do more of it, right? It feels good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, are you doing it for an intrinsic motivation or from, are you coming from a place where you're intrinsically motivated or are you trying to just to get someone to stop yelling at you. Like ask my kids <laughs> how much they like cleaning their room. You, you know, like they don't because to them it's fine. Right. But then all of a sudden, this is funny because we just put a new, um, we got a, my son wanted a, a, a loft bed and um, we had a friend, I mean, serendipitously, again, we had a friend whose daughter had just kind of grown out of hers. Like it was just, and like, you want this? Like, yeah, yes, please. So when it came time to put Buster's new bed together, um, Mr. I don't like to do chores or anything on Saturday. I just want a day off where I can put my feet up and play Minecraft or whatever. Um, all of a sudden he's in there <laughs> cleaning underneath his bed, you know, <laughs> finding stuff like voluntarily, you know what I mean? Like it, there was a win in it for him because he got to have some control and some impact over, you know, some say over how everything went in his room versus status quo is just fine. Why are you giving me so much grief, dad? Right. Like, and that's, that's the very similar way to how most managers lead their teams. And it's like, you're going about it the wrong way. Uh, Shifting gears a little bit. Sure. Uh, I mentioned back at the, at the top, uh, one of the ways that I I met you is you were fundraising Mm -hmm. and giving of your time as part of fundraising and connecting with some other people as a part of that, some other uh, sort of sales leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me more about that whole giving as part of your business and where that comes from and why, what, what does that mean to you? Giving, I think is important. Generosity is important. Along the way, there have been people who have been mentors, who have been leaders, who have been guides, who have been, um, who, some who have become friends. And without those people, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's one of the reasons I do what I do professionally. Um, given what I do, I know it's worth something to people. I'm fortunate enough I can make a living doing it. But the giving part is still the foundation of that. And um, you know, my wife and I have always been charitable. So that's just kind of who we are. Um, but 10 years ago now, um, one of my mentors, who's still a close friend to this day, came to me and said, um, hey, I need your help. And it's not often when a mentor turns around and says, regardless of what I've been able to do for you, I I need some help. Can you help me? And it was a cause that was just so um, important to him. And it happened to align with golf, which I am just sick for. And so it was kind of a match made in heaven there. But um, the fundraiser is a hundred holes of golf in a day to raise money for um, an organization called Chosen Vision that builds and staffs homes for developmentally disabled adults, um, of which my friend's um, youngest son is, is a resident. And so he's like, look, the organization needs help. We're doing great work. It's kind of a local regional kind of an organization. There's a need for it in the community. We can make a big impact. 
And so, you know, the first couple of years I went about just making the ask and, Hey, this is really important to me. Would you mind, you know, sharing? I, I know a lot of people ask for this. And then I finally said, you know, maybe I can do something different. And I had a bunch of friends who had all written books and a lot of them were self-published. I said, would you be hmm. willing to donate your book? And so I had just boxes of books showing up <laughs> at the house <laughs> And then I had to package them all. And the whole thing was, if you, if you bought, if you donated a hundred dollars, you, um, you got a library. It was something like 17 books worth, like, I don't know, $480 or something. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I had to package all these books and ship them out. And <laughs> like, this is, I got to find boxes. I got to, and I said, all right, there's gotta be a better way. And I said, what if there's another way that my friends can help? And so I got four friends and, um, we just did a four week long kind of group coaching program. It was like, show up with whatever. It's like office hours. And it was a rotating cast of characters every week. And um, we had a blast doing it. And so I did it again. And then I did it again. And this was the third year that I've done it. And we're going to do it again next year because every year, more people hear about it, more people tell their friends about it and it grows. And what I found is that I can make a bigger contribution, you know, everybody just, you know, they, they, everybody donates and just kind of assigns their pledge to, to me and then they get in. And so like, it's not like anybody's sending me money and then I write a big, you know, cardboard check or anything, but it's, it's all very transparent and seamless. Um, but more and more people are donating and it's helping spread the word, which is a big deal because there are other charities like this in a lot of locations. Um, it's a way that I get to meet people which is a ton of fun. It's a way I get to collaborate on cool projects with my friends. Like uh, my friends call me when they're done and they say, thank you, you know, and, <laughs> cool. and they say, I'm, I'm in for next year. I had a couple of people this year, like, can I do this with you next year? Like I've already got a, like a waiting list of people who want to guest coach, you know, and it's just turned into this really fun project that is just, it's, it's well-meaning, it's kind-spirited, it helps a bunch of people. The people, you get, I mean, Russ, you, you tell me, you, you donated, you actually, you mm -hmm. made a, a larger contribution than most, but tell me you didn't walk away with way more value than the dollar sign, you know, on that, that on your credit card statement for the donation. Like, everybody wins. And I, I just, it, it's just been such a cool thing. Uh, no, I just got to keep going. Too yeah, bad no, you're no. not doing the, sorry, Russ, too bad you're not doing the book thing anymore because I, I probably could have sent you another box of a new book. <laughs> and we can always get creative and figure out how to do that. It's just funny, the logistics of something um, physical like that being shipped multiple times. And then if you get someone who's, I mean, I had a couple of people from Canada, I think. And so now I have international shipping that I have to, and I have customs forms. And I have, and it's just like, you know, <laughs> why don't we do something virtual? So if you have like Kindle copies that you want to give away or PDFs, like I'm all for it, like dial it in. Right. I, I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, the physical uh, you know, manifestation of that whole thing was just, uh, it was, I said, yeah, this is good idea, Jeff. No, let's do something different next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a guest on the show recently who uh, his his company created NFTs, so it was all digital stuff. Mm. And and then they went to give away bottles of bourbon and shipping alcohol then across the country and around the world becomes a whole logistical nightmare too. So yes, it does. I feel that. Yeah. What failure do you have to share with us that uh, 
that ended up turning out okay or you learned something big from it or you rebounded from it oh wow failure i mean i have said the absolute worst i've said the absolute wrong thing at the wrong time and and managed to um get out of that i remember because i used to sell um total knee and total hip implants i remember talking to a, a physician after a let's just say a less than perfect surgery. And I remember using the word liable in a, in a sentence uh, that didn't get me a very good, I was, a, I was asked to leave. Um, mm. <laughs> was not mm. what he wanted to hear at that time. <laughs> and I learned from my mentor, he's like, yeah, don't use that word. Just there are certain words that stay away from, like we never have problems that we occasionally run into issues. Um, we're not liable for things, but there are some things that we do really make sure we take responsibility for, like just, just stuff like that. Um, but you know, I've never made such a mistake and I don't want to not answer your question. I'm thinking about this as I'm talking, but I, I've never really made such a mistake that I don't feel was valuable. And I think that's the, the, it might be what you're asking me to get get at is like failure is how we learn. And mm -hmm. particularly in a sales context, I tell people that you need to rethink your dysfunctional relationship with failure. Mm -hmm. Because just because you didn't make the sale, just because you didn't get the appointment, that doesn't mean that it was a failure. Like, did you learn something in that interaction that is going to better prepare you for the next one? If you did, that is a step forward. That is a win. And when you reframe your expectations a little bit and you look for these little wins, well, you get somewhere actually quite quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like I say, you know, no step is too small so long as it's headed in the right direction and you keep taking steps. You'll get there as soon as you can. And so really the, the issue with failure is perspective more than anything else. But I will tell you, I just, I thought of a failure. My wife and I talk about this with each other regularly. Um, it's not professional related, but it's, it's just significant. My stepson's going to be 26. Um, my daughter is 13. My son is 11. So there's a, there's a significant gap there. Um, and when my wife and I got together, Mike was six, five, six. We've, we've been together 20 years. We've been married a little over 15. And because of the circumstances surrounding their divorce and custody and, and everything else, um, we really felt like we needed to go out of our way to support him and help him through. And just, and like the, the, the failure that we made that, that I'll take responsibility for is that we didn't let him fail. Mm -hmm. we, we were really trying to prop him up and make sure that he was doing things. And um, that approach, that attitude, um, it didn't help. It actually made things harder. And what was interesting was, you know, his senior year of high school, you know, right before and we were finally just like, you know what, hands in the air, <laughs> you know, he turned 18 in the middle of the year and, you know, and, and it was just like, you know, here we're washing our hands of it. And he got his act together. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we did, <laughs> we could have done this like five, six years ago and probably would have had a completely different experience. But even to go back to what I was saying before about every failure becoming an opportunity, um, you know, we, we say this to our kids with due respect to Mike and with, um, you know, with, with uh, we've even said this to him. It's like, we, we tell our, my, my kids, um, uh, Allie and Ian, that they don't have the same set of parents that Mike had. Mm -hmm. We were the same people, but we're different people. Yeah. It, we're changed by that experience. 
you know, and we're handling things differently. And we, they have the benefit of having parents that this isn't their first go around. And there's actually a 12 year difference between, you know, um, when those, those two things uh, happen. And so um, the perspective, the counterintuitive approach in some ways um, we give our kids a lot of latitude to make decisions for themselves. And my parents are like, what? what? Like what? they need to start figuring this stuff out, mm-hmm. you know? And we have the perspective of being brought up in a certain way. And we also have the perspective of having, you know, the first round, um, you know, learning from it. Um, so it all just, it, it puts things into full view when, when you, when you do it that way, when you look at it that way, I, so I, I wouldn't call Mike a failure, mm-hmm. but there are certainly things that we learned that we would handle much differently. I think if in any way, in, in, in a lot of ways, Mike certainly isn't a failure, the, um, but we failed him at times mm-hmm. uh, through our best intentions and uh, out of our best interest. It was, it's funny how that happens sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can rob people of the opportunity to learn if you're not careful, right? By 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 propping them up. Yeah, and important life lessons. You know, I mean that that's what high school is for. High school is to teach you the things you need to do to you know go out there and and put it all together. And you you get into the social aspect a little bit, and you know you kind of you learn enough to be dangerous, really. And so if you think about how sheltered a lot of those people are, or how propped up some of those people are, it's like, in, in that way, you're sending them out to the world with one hand tied behind their back. They don't have that knowledge. They don't have that, those failures. They don't have those experiences to lean on mm-hmm. when they get out there. And, you know, I, I think one of the, and my kids really don't play sports like I do. Um, my daughter's getting into track and field a little bit. Uh, she wants to be a hurdler and I give her all the credit in the world for that. Cause it's just so hard. Um, but working together as a team, winning, losing, having to pick each other up when you're down, having to kick someone in the seat of the pants when they're not pulling their weight. Like you learn those social dynamics when you're growing up and then you get to college. And I think college is the perfect mix of independence and lack of responsibility. Like you're aware that there are bills that need to be paid. And occasionally you even see what those bills are. And for some people, they're very aware of what those bills are and they're having trouble paying them. Um, but you're not totally on the hook for them yet. And then you go to the real world. And so there's this graduated, mm-hmm. you know, stepping of things. But if you halt someone's progress early on, if you don't prepare them for that next step, they don't always take it. And then under different circumstances, you realize that you could have potentially just altered the career or altered the, the, the arc of someone's life because you weren't willing to let them get a D on a test. <laughs> <laughs> seems kind of seems kind of foolish yeah. when you look at it that way. Yeah, that's that's good good stuff. Yeah, we have to we have to build our son, and actually, I have it with my. I have a lot of younger team members in my team, mm-hmm. and to learn to teach them how to develop this resiliency because not everything is going great. Because what they expect from you, much along the ways of what you're saying, is that um, that I tell them what to do and mm-hmm. I correct everything when they're messed up, right? Or when it's not perfect what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So they look at me, I'm like, yeah, I figured it out. I, 
what what do you want me to do right <laughs> right right hey I, i put you here because i trust you to learn these lessons exactly you're gonna figure that, it out. and and you know when you lead a team it's it, so many people just want to get the answers right And we're taught that in the education system, right? It's, it's not about learning. It's about getting the answers on the test, right? Will this be on the test, right? Seth Godin likes to talk about that. And if it's really just about the outcome, then Maurice, why don't you just tell me how to do it? Heck, why don't you do it for me? Well, because then you won't be able to do it for yourself one day. Like, mm -hmm. and oh, by the way, um, I'm going to ask you if you did it. And then I'm going to ask you if you need anything, any kind of help, but then I'm going to expect that you do it. And I'm going to make sure that I'm going to ask you right before the deadline, do you have that thing done? And it's not that I'm looking over your shoulder. It's that I trust you so much that I expect this to be done. That's a different take on that conversation. And that's really why I think so many leaders don't have those conversations. They're afraid to be to have those conversations misconstrued. They're so anti-micromanagement that they don't even want to check in on people. It's like you have to have these constraints, but these constraints, when they're founded in trust and integrity, go back to that. It's like, no, Maurice, I believe you can do this. I know you can do this. And um, a lot of people... They just, because there's been so much poor management, because there's been a lot of people who don't think in those terms, don't have that perspective as they come up, particularly professionally. It's like, you know, why are you harping on me? Or why, you know, it's no, I'm not harping on you. I just, I believe in you. You don't believe in you enough to get this done on time. That's the problem that we're really having here. But I'm putting you in a situation where I believe you can succeed. Please don't complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> please just go out there and succeed. Right. And if everybody just does their part, we're going to get where we need to go. And um, it's tough. That's why leadership positions like that are so tough because there's so many different personalities to manage and not everybody comes in with that clean slate. And even when you tell them, this is what I expect. And this is how we do things around here. It's so rare. They're like, wait, what you trust me? I, I'm not sure I trust you. <laughs> Right, like I don't, I, I've never have been in a, an environment where there's this much trust before. I don't know if I could trust it here, and um, it's funny when you you think about the paradox of that. But um, that's the way it, it really, I think it really should be, and that's the way um, successful teams operate, and that, that's why they operate at such a high level. Let me, uh, Russ. Let me follow up on this. Um, <laughs> in terms of you, we just talked about how you manage your team members or kids for that matter but earlier you you said something of kind of manage expectation with your manage managers mm -hmm. so uh, when i when i did my studies um there was an article i can't remember the title exactly but it essentially was something like manage your managers right and kind of guide them and lead them through being better managers mm -hmm. how did you do it for you how did you get your managers to a point where they would just let you do you, right? And live your experience. Well, success goes a long way. Um, I was fortunate, the company that I worked for, they, they did have these annual reviews and you had to and put your goals. And there was a section there that said, what do you need from your manager? And um, I always just said, I need them to go to bat for me when I need them, right? I, I need a little bit of oversight. I need, you know, I, I like being, um, 
I didn't like being checked in on, but I appreciated having to be accountable for somebody or, or to somebody rather for some things. Um, but I just said, look, I need support. If I've got something that I need, you know, to have run up the flagpole, I need you to run it up the flagpole for me, right? I'm, I'm going to need your executive uh, title to get this done. Sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. And, you know, the benefit of being one of the top performers in the company is that sometimes you can just call the executive vice president on his cell phone and have those conversations yourself, right? Um, but I feel like I've been really fortunate to have three off the top of my head um, managers that I would lay down in traffic for. Um, so there wasn't as much management that I needed Um I didn't need to manage my manager so much because they were so willing to be managed. Like it wasn't as much of a chore for me. Um, but the way I kind of, to answer your question more directly, I, I earned the right. I earned the seat at the table. And in some ways it meant, okay, I'm going to do it your way, but I'm going to do it my way too. I'm going to do it your way in the interim so that you are okay with the way I'm doing things. Fine, I'll check the boxes you want me to check. But ultimately, I'm going to deliver my own results because I know the results matter. And once the results are there, you're going to stop asking these questions. And so managing managers really comes from um, the results speaking for themselves. But I also think there's a dynamic in sales teams particularly. Um, sales teams, it's ironic, but it, this exists in every uh, manager and employee relationship. There's a, there's a customer dynamic there. I believe that anytime you want something to do something, or anytime you want somebody to do something, anytime you ask them to do something for you, you're making a sales call. Anytime they do it, they, they're your customer. You just made a sale, right? You asked for something, they did it. That's a win. Okay, they're your customer. If you need your manager to do something for you, um, you need to justify why it is in their best interest for them to do it. So you need to know what their goals are, right? By the same token, if you're a manager, the team you lead, the 8, 10, 12 people that, that call you their boss, those are your best customers because you need them to do things for you that are going to be in their best interest. And when those mutual interests are aligned, well, now we start working together which is a completely different dynamic than most people who are like, I expect these reports on my desk by 9am on Monday morning and get it done. And I'm going to check in on you and make sure you're doing your work just so that I can feel better about the answers I have to give to my boss because he or she treats me the same way that I'm treating you. It's this dysfunction that runs through organizations. So when you start to think about your boss or you start to think about your team as your best customer, you start to treat them a little bit differently. You start to look for mutual ways that you can both benefit, that you can both win. And so I manage my managers by treating them like I would my customers. I was actually accused at a national sales meeting one time of being essentially being a homer for my company. And I, I was attacked essentially for being constantly aware of what the best interests of my company were. And to me, it's like, well, if I know what they want, I'm never surprised. I'm never shocked when they change the comp plan. I'm never shocked when we have a new promo for a new product that we're all going to struggle to sell. And they know they just need to pay us more if we sell it, right? I, I'm never surprised when they realign territories. I'm never said, like, I can kind of see what, 
I can predict their next move because I know what they want because I just took the time to figure it out. And if I was always acting in a way that was going to help the company achieve what it wanted to achieve, wow, it's really amazing how many deals I got approved. It's amazing how many just little things that little favors or or just stuff that they would let slide. You know, I'd get calls from my manager sometimes. How did you get approved at this pricing? Well, I realized that we were either going to get in at this pricing or you could remove these expectations from my quota. Well, they didn't like that. <laughs> like we get to play ball in this hospital system at this price or we don't get to play ball. Like, what do you want? Just let me know and I will, I will play accordingly. But I think there's a way we can play ball here. And I'm not big on discounting. We got really creative with what we were able to offer them for those pricing for those prices. We were we were being treated very very fairly. But just the the I would get creative in my position to help my manager, to help the company, to help everybody's manager get what they wanted to get. And when you look at it through the lens of a sales process, it's really pretty simple. And I think I think a lot of times we're we're kind of taught that. We're, we have a job mm-hmm. and we have to do that job and we lose sight of there's a, you know, my boss has a job and his boss has a job and the other department has a job and the company yeah. is trying to achieve something. And if we can get everybody to line up together, we're all more likely to succeed. It's not just uh, me hitting or missing. Right? So For that's sure. crazy, man. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it though? Yeah. Wild idea. Yeah. Oh, thinking about what's in it, what, what's what's in it for everybody else. Yeah, that's uh, that's why you call this the Crazy People Podcast. <laughs> there you go. We're all we're all a little nutty here. You talked a little bit about um, business growth, but I think and and sales growth and, and career growth, and I think in some of those you've you've hinted at there's personal growth, mm-hmm. right? There's there's self awareness and and other things. How do you how do you see all that? all the different types, all the aspects of your life growth fitting together. In some ways, I may over-identify as a human being with what I do professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, some people would say that, some people might say that's unhealthy. I think there's just tremendous integration between what I do and who I am. And uh, I've been asked this before, you know, as I'm coaching people, Jeff, are you a sales coach? Or are you a life coach? I'm like, I don't know if there's much difference. At the extremes, there's tremendous difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in terms of what we're trying to do, and in, in, in what's funny is I told this story to some some people, some salespeople at this conference I was at just a couple of weeks ago, and they're I was encouraged because they're they're like way younger than me. But I told the same story, and they said, "What's the difference?" And I said, "Okay, I like where you're going with this because like sales is not." a transaction that involves money for an exchange of goods or services. Sales is the way we interact with other human beings. It's understanding how to find win-win situations. It's understanding how to creatively solve problems in ways that only you can solve, you know, and, and it's, it, you know, Brian Tracy called it a, a transfer of enthusiasm, you know, and, and when you put it in those terms, most sales are made without money. They don't involve money. When you go tell me to watch that movie that you just came from and this is so good, or when you, because you live in Louisville and you say, if you see this bourbon on the shelf, you need to pick it up. You're not buying it for me, right? And I'm not buying it from you, but I'm going to try it and I'm probably going to like it. And it, it like, when you start to just take a step back and see the bigger picture, 
I don't know how business growth happens in the absence of personal growth, unless you are purposely trying to shut off that part of your person, that part of your psyche, that part of your, your being, because if you're paying any attention, you should be learning and growing along with it. I mean, even just through the, the, the small lens of, well, I made this sale and it helped me learn how to make another one like it next time. But I think particularly in this economy where we talk about gig economies or, you know, you mentioned earlier, like you've been posting on LinkedIn before it was cool. You've been post, you've been a, a sales coach longer than, than, you know, it's been cool to be a sales coach. And, you know, it's easy to put these courses out there and, and with a big enough network, you can make some really nice money selling this, these, these things. And you, and most people do really good work too. Um, but I just, I've learned so much about life through my journey in sales. I see too many parallels. Um, to ignore. And, you know, to that extent, I've, I've learned so much about sales and life by my golf addiction, right? I mean, it's just, there's so many, there's so many things. I think if you're paying attention, you see how it all is woven. It, it's all woven together. If you're willing to pay attention and open your eyes to that kind of stuff. Um, so the business wins turn into life wins. The life wins turn into business wins. Um, and the lessons all around just help make for a, a richer experience in every in every aspect of it i have one more question that we like to ask uh what would the message be to your 16 year old or 18 year old self if you had to deliver oh, it trust yourself listen to that voice in the back of your head uh, particularly when it's when you may hear it in the back of your head but when it comes from your heart when it comes from someplace deep inside you um yeah you're right it's right it's never led me wrong um, the times I've tried to ignore it, the times I've said, you know what, this isn't the right thing, but okay, I'm, I guess I'm going to do this. I, uh, okay. It always ends up, I always ended up unhappy and um, with less than stellar performance too. You know, it's like, and it's not just your, I mean, I guess that's the same as saying your gut, but like your instincts, your intuitions, they're there for a reason. And I think, it's beaten out of us. I think culture beats it out of us. I think we're conditioned to fall in line, to, to take orders, follow directions, and just, you know, do what we're told. And that is certainly the easy way to do it. It's not fun. Sometimes it's okay. But that is the easy way to do it. That is the easy way to mediocrity. But at some point, if you want to reach your true potential, you need to listen to that guide that comes from inside you. And it doesn't lead you wrong. And I am waiting. And because like I told you, I still test it all the time. <laughs> I still ignore it from time to time. I am waiting for that to be proven wrong. I'm waiting for that time where, um, yeah, the right choice was to not, you know, uh, listen to that voice inside my head. Just hasn't happened. So that, that's what I would remind my younger self that um, he is smarter than he realizes. Fantastic. I think these, those are fantastic words uh, for closing. And uh, by the way, I like your, your shelf in the background. The combination <laughs> of the thinking man and Yoda, it's, uh, it's a good team. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You got a little Rodan there. We got uh, Yoda. We've got baby Yoda. Those, the, the Yodas were my um, pandemic projects. Those are Lego. Um, so there was, you know, like, all right, well, we're going to be isolated. I'm going to keep my hands busy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jeff, um, since, uh, Ross did the intro, I do the outro. I thank you so cool. much for, for joining us today. 
I think it's been really, really inspiring and not at all as crazy as uh, one would think it was. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking your time. Uh, I hope everybody in the audience out there um, took away as much as I did and um, see you in the next podcast with uh, a bunch of crazy people. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun.